Praise be Jesus Christ, and welcome back to CarmelCast. I am Brother John Mary of Jesus Crucified, and I'm joined once again by Father Pier Giorgio of Christ the King. How are you doing, Father? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> Good. Good. Well, we're excited once again to be back to share a little bit and reflect on some aspects of Carmelite spirituality, and then end this episode with a, a great interview. Um, so who or what, who I want to talk about today is uh, a Carmelite blessed, blessed Marie Eugene of the Child Jesus. And he's actually one of our more unknown, I think, uh, Carmelite saints and blesseds. I feel like in, in more recent years, his, he's become more well-known, but um, yeah, he's not, he's not as popular as like Therese or Elizabeth. Um, and I think, or Teresa and John of the Cross. So, but I think he has a lot to say to us, especially as uh, in, our, in our times and in, in kind of contemporary society. And so I just wanted to start then by giving kind of just a brief biography, tell you a little bit, share a little bit about who he is. And um, hopefully then from there, we can kind of bounce off and, and share a little bit about his specific spirituality. So he was born, uh, he was named Henry, and he was born in 1894 in southern France. And he was one of five children. And his father uh, worked in the mines in France, so um, very hard work. So his family was very poor, and they really suffered a lot during that time. And actually, his father died when Henry was about 10 years old. And I think it's interesting that um, so many of our saints, they lost a parent, at least one parent, when they were young. Um, I don't know. There might be something, something to that. John of the Cross, his father died when he was young. Teresa lost her mother. Therese lost her mother. Elizabeth lost her father. I don't know. It's something about the, the Carmelite saints in particular, it seems. Edith Stein lost her father. It's, it's yeah. a very, it's in a very astute observation. One that, uh, that uh, people have actually asked me about: what's with Carmelite saints and the fact that most of them lost parents at a young age? Yeah, there's something about the suffering, the psychological experience of that suffering from a young age. I think that drives a person, um, if they respond well to God's grace, it res- uh, drives them to holiness. I think. Um, so uh, Henry felt called to the priesthood from a very early age, um, and he actually he entered the seminary at age 17, and that was when he first discovered St. Therese and began to read and fall in love with her spirituality. And two years after that, after he entered the seminary in 1913, uh, something rather significant happened in the world. Uh, world War I erupted, and so um, Henry ended up leaving his time of studies in the seminary in order to serve in the army. And he served for five years on the front lines as an officer. And he actually won awards for his bravery, the bravery that he showed uh, during, during the war. Again, a kind of an interesting thing, I think, about um, his life, the fact that his, his time of seminary was disrupted by this time of um, very difficult time of war that really kind of could shape him as a person. Um, So after the war, he resumed his studies in 1919, and then he went on retreat in preparation for his diaconate in 1920. And it was on that retreat that he was reading a book on the life of St. John of the Cross. 
when he received this sudden overwhelming revelation to become a Carmelite. I think it's very interesting also to see the ways that our saints kind of interact with each other, how certain, certain people feel drawn to or called to Carmel through the interaction with another saint. So we see, for example, well, we see Henry here is reading about St. John of the Cross, and that's really when he feels called to Carmel. And uh, Edith Stein's another example. She was reading the life of St. Teresa when she received her calling to become a Carmelite or to become a Catholic at first and then later a Carmelite. And so I think we all have kind of our individual saints that, that we are reading. I don't know. What was it for you, Father Giorgio? <laughs> Uh, Therese, of course. Therese, yeah. <laughs> and I was a seminarian as well, so I share that in common with with Blessed Marie Eugène. Yes, I was in I was in seminary, not quite a deacon. I was very early on and uh, read read Story of a Soul and uh, was very much struck by uh, that life of sanctity that she that she in simplicity really, and that that's really what what drew me was that idea of um, of 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 a simple spirituality. And because I thought I was a new Catholic at the time too, just a few years. And that idea of not overcomplicating things, but, but loving simply and confidently. Yeah. So that was it for me. And I should mention too, that next week we're going to be talking about uh, Edith Stein's conversion. Yes. Yeah. Through that, through that interaction with the life of Teresa of Avila. It is interesting. I think it's a good thing actually to mention as we're reflecting on these ways of belonging to the Carmelite charism, how it is that often this call to become a Carmelite comes through um, a relationship or a particular like even moment of um, experience of one of the Carmelite saints. It's often through that that I think we're drawn. We always say that St. Therese is our, our greatest vocation director and for the friars because it's really through knowing her um, that many of our guys feel called to enter to become Carmelite friars. It doesn't hurt that on the back page of Story of a Soul, we put our vocation website URL <laughs> yes. for people to see. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so Henry's on this retreat to become ordained a deacon, for become a diocesan priest, and it's when he, that's when he really has this call to become a Carmelite. And it's interesting because when he shared this with his spiritual director, his spiritual director basically told him that he was mad. And he shared him, he shared this um, information with his mother and his mother took it very hard. She actually told him that if he went, that she would kill herself. And so it was like very, this dramatic um, reaction. His bishop didn't want to let him go. His bishop wanted him to remain in the diocese. So he experienced a lot of tension and pressure to remain, um, yeah, to remain and not become a Carmelite friar. And again, this is something we see often in the lives of the saints, but also I think in our own experiences of this call to Carmel is there's, there's often this resistance and difficulty that is required in the, the, the very fact of entering. Yeah, I'm reminded of, of St. Elizabeth at the Trinity and, and her mother and how long it took for her mother to come around to the idea of Elizabeth entering the Carmel and Dijon. Yeah. Yeah, so Blessed Marie Jean, or Henry at this time, he actually he ended up um, remaining in the diocese for a time because he couldn't be released from by his diocese, by his bishop. 
So he was ordained a priest a little over a year later. And it was on the day of his ordination to the priesthood that he received another confirmation of his call to become a Carmelite. And so less than three, we three weeks later, he entered the Carmel in Fountain Blue, taking the name Marie Eugene of the child Jesus. And so this was the beginning of his, um, his time in Carmel and really the beginning of um, really, yeah, something beautiful for a gift to the order of Carmel. One thing that I think is very significant in his life is the years and how God works in his providence. Um, the years in which Marie Eugene was a Carmelite, and particularly these beginning years of when he was a Carmelite. So this was all around the early 1920s when he first entered. And during those years, we have in 1923, the beatification of St. Therese. In 1925, the canonization of St. Therese. And then in 1926, St. John of the Cross was made a doctor of the church. And so this would have been very just formative in the life of Marie Eugene, that during these years, there would have been a lot of focus on St. Therese and St. John of the Cross, who were the two that originally had kind of drawn him to Carmel. And so here they were kind of shaping him from the beginning of his time as a Carmelite friar uh, in their spirituality to share that spirituality with the world. And another thing that's like highly interesting, maybe Father Pier Giorgio can say more about this, but um, something that's very important that Marie Eugene ended up doing in his life is uh, having a profound impact on the publication of the story of a soul by St. Therese. Uh, do you know much about that story, Father Pier Giorgio? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we've covered it in a previous episode, even. Uh, I think it was the last, it was the final episode of season three. I can't remember which episode number that is, but it's all about sort of the history of Story of a Soul and its publication. But it was interesting, to, just to kind of review a little bit, uh, that, um, you know, when Story of a Soul was first released by the Carmelite nuns, by Trez's own blood sisters, um, they had edited it a little bit, you know, they had, they had omitted certain passages, uh, they had redacted certain things. And so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the, the, uh, the whole picture of who Therese was. And, you know, in order for Therese to, um, you know, at the time, you know, even early on in Marie Jean's life, there was talk about Therese being made a doctor of the church. And in order for that, to happen in order to pave the way for that, they really needed to see the original manuscripts. And it was uh, through Blessed Marie Eugène's really, his his impetus and his his insistence working with um, with Mother Agnes and 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 trying to, Trez's sister and trying to get the, the manuscripts, the full, the original manuscript from the Carmel uh, it was it took a lot of convincing, <laughs> yeah. but but uh, what a treasure we have we have as a result. There's a great story. I think you may know it better than I do because I think well I, I think it was actually Father Michael Joseph who discovered it. But uh, the story of uh, of of Gabriel, Father Gabriel of Saint Mary Magdalene and and Blessed Marie Eugene. Yeah, I think that they, when they it was when they first received these manuscripts, right? They the originals, yeah the original manuscripts, how they were just kind of like stayed up all night, kind of pouring over the manuscripts. They were so excited to finally have the original manuscripts. And actually I have that quote. Um, this is from the, I think the preface of 
story of his soul, the quote from um, Blessed Marie Eugene, when he was defender general of the Discalced Carmelites, he sent this letter to Mother Agnes. I don't know if we read this in that other episode, but I want to read it now just because I think it is significant. It shows how important this was to Marie Eugene. He writes to Mother Agnes, the church has spoken. The sainthood and the doctrinal mission of St. Therese of the Child Jesus are universally recognized. From now on, she belongs to the church and to history. To avoid and to refute partial or mistaken interpretations of her doctrine, and in order that her doctrine and her soul should be more deeply understood, the documents that you have so generously given us are insufficient. Only the original texts can allow us to discover the movement of her thought, its living rhythm, and disclose all the light contained in her definitions, which are usually so firm and precise. So we see kind of this great influence in this letter of uh, kind of pressuring a little bit, but showing that now that Therese has been canonized, she doesn't belong to you anymore in the Carmel. She belongs to the whole church. And so that this needs to be, these, these documents need to be released. And it was as a result of, I mean, there's, there's clear documentary evidence that um, differences in the manuscript uh, were influential in, in making, you know, making Therese's message stronger and more, and, and more, uh, and more innovative in terms of making her uh, worthy of, of that title of doctor of the church. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we can see, yeah, the great, well, the love that Maria Jean had for Therese, but also the significant role that he played in in this aspect of of getting what we now that we have today, we can publish, you know, in ICS publications, we can publish the complete uh, unedited version of Story of the Soul. Yeah. So Maria Jean would spend um, nearly the rest of his life kind of in, in administrative positions within the order as prior, as provincial as gen, uh, part of the general council. And he really devoted his life to sharing the teachings of the Carmelite saints, believing that all people were called to sanctify and, or to sanctity and to contemplation. And we see here kind of this kind of um, prefiguring the one of the emphasis of the Second Vatican Council that it was at the time it was discussed among theologians, are all people called to contemplation? And that's one thing that Maria Jean was very strong on. He believed that all people are called to sanctity and all people are called to this experience of deep prayer um, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He also, I think it's significant to, to mention that he had a very strong relationship with the third person of the Trinity as well in, in the Holy Spirit. And it kind of related to this idea of all people being called to, to sanctity He's in many ways like a 20th century uh, Jean-Baptiste Chatard, who's the you know the author of the famous book, The Soul of the Apostolate. And in some of, of Blessed Marie Eugène's writings, he makes similar connections that we can't do. We can't do active apostolates without a strong foundation in prayer, which is another, which is an, a, a continuation of that, of that insight of of uh, of Jean Baptiste Chatard. So it's it's an interesting. It's sort of he's sort of like this Carmelite uh, source for the the same idea of the soul of the apostolate that I think um, people should be more aware of. He has a great book that's that's very similar to Soul of the Apostolate called Where the Spirit Breathes. And it's all about uh, it's all about that 
that relationship with the Holy Spirit that is so instrumental in our ability to bring about the kingdom, our ability to engage in the apostolate of Jesus Christ. So another great, another great plug for, for his contributions to the church. Right. Yeah. And then that brings us to an, another set of books, uh, two volumes of books that he actually ended up publishing. Um, when he was a, I think he was a prior at the time, there was this group of young professionals, mainly uh, professors at secondary schools and at universities who came to his monastery and they were asking to be taught about Carmelite prayer. And really due to their persistence, Marie Eugene finally agreed to offer a course on prayer and on Carmelite spirituality. And so during this time, he was offering conferences every month or so to this group, followed by a half hour of, of prayer. And it's from these conferences then that later um, were published these two volumes called I Want to See God and I Am a Daughter of the Church. And so these two volumes, I Want to See God, those are the uh, words of St. Teresa when she was young. She said that. And then I Am a Daughter of the Church are the words that she said just before her death. And these volumes are great because it's really, it's a practical synthesis of Carmelite spirituality based on the teachings of Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and St. Therese. And he does a great job of weaving all this together in a very digestible form. Um, I've actually been meeting with a group of young adults, um, on mainly university students, going through this book. And it's just, it's so amazing to see this um, starting from the beginning with these foundations and then working through what is prayer and how to live um, Carmelite spirituality. And then with this group, which is the point again of, of Marie Eugene's whole thing is like then putting it into practice, taking time and practicing prayer, um, living a life of prayer. And so those books, I think we, you can buy them from the ICS website, uh, icspublications.org. And I highly recommend both of them. I want to see God and I am a daughter of the church. So then we have um, kind of wrapping up the end of uh, Marie Eugene's life. The last couple of years he had declining health, but he still continued to teach spirituality. And he died in 1967 at the age of 72. He was made a venerable by Benedict the 16th in 2011 and beatified by Francis in 2016. So we can see uh, more recently, really his, his name has become more, more well-known outside of France. And um, yeah, I believe hopefully he'll be canonized uh, within the next several years. We'll see. And his feast day is uh, February 4th. Well, I skipped one important aspect of his life. Um, back in 1929, um, which was, yeah, he was, you know, had been ordained for about 10 years at this point. There were three young women who ran a school who came to him for spiritual advice and for spiritual direction. And this was the beginning of what would become uh, Notre Dame de Vie, which is a secular institute that um, belongs to the Carmelite family. And so I'm very excited that we have an interview with a member of Notre Dame de Vie, Anne Elizabeth Giuliani. And in that interview, she'll explain a lot more about what is a secular institute and what is the charism of Notre Dame de Vie and how that fits in with the Carmelite charism. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this interview after a short break. 
Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, sharing about your vocation with all of us. Thank you, Brother John Mary. It's a great joy to be with you today on this Feast of All Saints. Um, so my name is Anne Elizabeth Giuliani. I'm a professed member in the Institute of Notre Dame de Vie, a secular institute founded by Blessed Marie Eugene of the Child Jesus in 1932. Wow, yeah, so I feel like um, not many of us even know what is a secular institute. Could you explain <laughs> that? <laughs> it's a great secret almost in yes. the church. Um, but no, it's, a, it's, a, it's also great news. It's a form of consecrated life that was formally recognized by the church in 1947. So it's fairly new in the formal recognition, but it goes back truly to the time of Christ when he was in the, in the Holy Lands, surrounded by men and women who, but we know especially of those women, who really um, accompanied him, uh, supported him in his daily life. And along the, the course of the centuries, they were really many impetus uh, for people who were fully immersed in the world and yet lived a consecration. And for example, St. Francis de Sales wanted his visitandines to be like what today is a secular institute. But the society historically and socially, nobody was ready to have women out and about without any structure. It was not uh, possible to envision it. Mm. Between the um, two world wars in Europe, the church noticed that there were a growing number of um, men and women, of groups of men and women popping up throughout Europe. Um, people who wanted to be fully, fully, fully dedicated to God and to the church, and yet felt a call to remain in the world, in the secular world. Secular meaning the world, the, the ages. World War I was a tremendous trauma in in all of Europe, millions of men died, young men. And that's when we, you see the movement of the absurd, uh, of all of these kinds of things in arts and all over. So um, that was also, these groups were also a response to the fact that the world as we had known it and the church as we had known it was not making much sense. So Notre Dame de Vie was uh, born um, at that time. I think that was... Um, deeply the intuition of uh, Father Maria Jean, who is now blessed. He was a young Carmelite friar and priest. Young, but already quite mature, because he had fought in World War I as a, as a seminarian. And he had seen the atrocities and the absurdity of war in his own, uh, of course, flesh and reflection as a, as a young seminarian. And as a young um, friar, he was sent to Lille, which is in the north of France, not far from some of the, the fighting, uh, you know, the, the war as, um, um, 
zones. And he met lots of people. He met Maritain, he met many philosophers there. And he was so convinced of the relevance of uh, our saints, the doctrine of Carmel for today. He could see how it was resonating in so many circles, so many milieus. But he also felt as a very zealous uh, young, mature man and priest, uh, that it was no longer as it used to be. And he said, I wish we had helps, he would say at the time. It was very new in his mind. He had no preconceived ideas, but he, he was expressing a need. He said, I, I wish we had little helps who would live Carmel through and through, as we friars do, but who could go where we cannot go, or where we are not necessarily called to go. So he had this very deeply in his, in his heart, not knowing what it could uh, look like. But you see how it was born of these, these needs, the, this uh, acute understanding and awareness of the needs of the time, and understanding um, the, the necessity to adapt, to adjust, to respond, but yes, with the fullness of Carmel. He really always wanted the fullness of Carmel. So, um, things happened in his life. He was um, sent to this, uh, he was in the south of France um, working in a school. But while he was there, um, three ladies, uh, young women uh, from Marseille, the big city next to it, uh, came to him. And these ladies were on fire, on fire for the Lord. They were um, um, very um, seasoned and passionate teachers. And they had founded the first high school for girls in Marseille after World War I. That was the first high school ever for girls in that, in that area. So, um, but they were very um, moved and attracted by the Carmelites' um, saints. And, and writings, especially John of the Cross, but also, of course, our Holy Mother and um, Therese. And so they knocked on the doors of many Carmels and were told repeatedly, you do not belong here. And one day, one of those um, holy, you know, um, Carmelite mothers at one of the Carmels said, but you know, you should go and meet Father Marie Eugene of the Child Jesus. It was at the Carmel of Bonn who was dedicated to the child Jesus. And so he received them. And they described the first encounter where he was, you know, in his very simple habit. And they were on there uh, very well dressed. It was Pentecost and they were impeccably dressed. And so they, the, the contrast. But they, something happened. And he said later that he recognized them. He had waited for so long. And so... Um, at the time, the secular, the, it was 1929, so the Secular Institute, of course, did not exist canonically, and the only canonical um, structure was a special um, secular order. At the time, we would say third order um, community that he started with them, but immediately with the desire to give, for them to give themselves fully, even though this lifestyle did not exist canonically. So at the very same time, a property um, in near Avignon, so in the southeast of France where they were too, was given to the Carmelites 
uh, to the friars and they didn't know what to do with it. So Father Marjin said, well, maybe I'm interested, let's go and see. And he discovered there that there was a shrine dedicated to Our Lady Mother of Life that had been pre present there since the 5th century. So Mary had been honored and um, had been also given of her immense generosity so abundantly to the people of the region. And especially she would answer um, prayers for little children who had died or were very sick or for people who could not have children, giving them the gift of life. So that was her name was for Our Lady of Life, Notre Dame de Vie. So those women at the beginning, he would just tell them, just pray, do this silent prayer at least two hours a day. Of course, they would, when we are in solitude, we tend to do more. And, um, you know, there were scriptures, there was the reading of our saints, the sacrament as much as they could. And, and that's it for a year. And of course, he would, he would guide them as much as he could, but, you know, there was no telephone, no internet, no, none of it, but this kind of thing. So it was very, and then the other ones were keeping the school because he wanted immediately, they were ready to give up, to give up the school, to forego everything, but he wanted, um, them to live then in the world. So the idea of Notre Dame de Vie for him was that the Carmelite charism, the mystical life, can be lived in the world, which goes with, of course, the Vatican II and the, the universal call for holiness that we can live it in all states of life. But in order to live it in the world because of the noisiness, because there is not the structure that our Holy Mother Teresa gave for the nuns or for the friars too, um, then it was absolutely necessary to have long periods of solitude because if not, it's not impossible to keep the Carmelite flame alive. Even with it, it's hard, right? <laughs> so, so this evolved in, it was approved, of course, step by step by the church, but this evolved with um, us be starting our experience living the life of Notre Dame de Vie for two years in a center of solitude. So at the beginning it was only Notre Dame de Vina. We have a few other centers, but not many in the world. The life in our centers of solitude, the structure is very similar to what you have in your convent, monasteries, nuns, friars. It's very the similar kind of life. The traditions for the feast days, the reading, I mean, it's, you wouldn't be uh, lost <laughs> there. Um, and after those, this initial formation of two years, we are sent back, as we say, in the world, usually with a profession. And there we, um, a, a job, a profession in the sense of a job, taking, of course, um, the, the, the vows, because the church recognized, so in 47, going back to that, that there was, in fact, no theological impediment for a consecrated life lived in the world. It's simply something that had not been done, um, but that theologically there was no impediment. It was new, it was probably coming with its own challenges, its own graces also, um, but so it was recognized. So that's what we do, and then we're sent back. And so in the world, we keep, we tr so the goal, the purpose is really to bring the love of God, no? this fire that we, we try to approach and, and experience in, in contemplative prayer, to bring it to the world uh, ever so uh, 
poorly and with many limitations. Um, so we keep the, the rhythm of the two hours of um, mental prayer, interior prayer, and every year also we spend uh, 45 days uh, in a center of solitude in retreat and at least three weeks in a row so that we have really the time to go back deep and to really um, let ourselves be re-seized by the charism at every, uh, every stage and in our lives. You mentioned that, that Notre Dame de Vie started with three women. Um, so are there only women who are in the Secular Institute? or So women is the, the largest group um, and the, the first one to historically. But very soon after, there was a group of young men and uh, later to diocesan priests who wanted to nurture their spiritual life, who felt a call to uh, the radicality in a way of Carmel, but also were called to be diocesan priests. And as we evolved canonically, we are one single institute with three autonomous branches. So each branch has its own uh, government. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have a common spirit and we try to nurture this common spirit as much as, as we can. Could you say maybe how your particular way of, of being in the world, um, your profession or job, how, is, how has that allowed you then to, to bring the Carmelite charism, to bring Christ to places that I really, I, 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 I'm not called to as a friar or someone's not called to as a nun? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a mystery to, to me still after many, many years, it still is. So we share it in, in the ordinariness of, um, you know, a job. Some people have uh, a profession in which, like I do have now, in which sometimes it's easier to you work for the church. So it's easier to uh, make a direct announce, uh, you know, sharing and uh, of... Um, what Carmel is and what Carmel can bring. And of course, here at the shrine of St. John Paul II, knowing his deep connection with Carmel, it's even a joy to say, hey, you know, he was praying a lot in silence, guess why? <laughs> and let's talk about it. So, um, but some people, and at times I was working as an interpreter, so each time I was, you know, sometimes you have to say things you don't want to say. You have to interpret and some people say things you don't want to say, but you, you have to be faithful. And so you, you do it, you do it in a way you learn also how to, to represent. I think it's very important for us to think about today in the church, um, to think again about what is the secular world? What is the world we are in and how you know, when the council talks about the seeds of the world, the, the word of God, the seed of the word of God being present, um, we tend so much, I think today, to to separate uh, very much. You know, there is the good, my good life at the church, my good life with my prayer group, my good life with adoration, and then uh, my good readings, and then my life in the world. And sometimes we see people having a little bit of struggle to reconcile it. No, it's the same life, right? And um, so, but our saints are so wonderful to show this to us. But at Notre Dame de Vie, we have a special saint that I have to share with you about. Please. <laughs> of course, there is Therese, and Therese is, uh, and I was talking, thinking about hiddenness today, but um, there is a saint who has loved Carmel for 
centuries, but was not at the forefront, and she represented herself to Father Mario Jean. He noticed that every year on the 23rd of January, he received a special gift. I mean, so identifiable as a gift that he began to notice. So he tried to find out whose feast day it was, and it became clear to him that it was Emerantiana. She was the um, wet sister of Agnes, St. Agnes in the Roman times, so the 4th or 5th century, I'm not sure, um, in Rome. And she was, she may have been African, we don't know, but there were African slaves in Rome at the time, in any case, or from North Africa, yeah, maybe from North Africa. She was a, sl a slave. And Agnes was from a very prominent uh, family. And she was fully in service of Agnes, fully in service of the family. And um, when Agnes was martyred, she was buried outside of the city where the family had a property, where the catacombs of St. Agnes are. She would, out of loyalty and friendship for Agnes, she missed Agnes so much, she was probably a teenager, she would go every day to the tomb of Agnes to find her spirit, to be with her, to be connected with her. And um, some pagans and people noticed that, and she was stoned to death, though so she received the baptism of blood, because we are not sure she was ever baptized, on the tomb of Agnes in faithfulness. And you may have noticed, if you go there, that with Agnes in the same tomb, are also the remains of Emerantiana. They are buried together as two sisters. For Father Marjin, it was the relationship that Notre Dame de Vie was to have vis-à-vis -vis the order, Carmel. The little servant who doesn't deserve to be there was just taken in this great movement of Carmel in service of our saints, of our doctrine of the order, if the order wants us to, you know, I mean, in, truly in service of this great uh, tradition and also in service of the church. What advice would you give to someone who um, might be feeling like God is calling them to discern a call to a secular institute or particularly to Notre Dame de Vie? <laughs> It's, uh, it's hard because I think our vocations are so personal, so personal. Uh, I would say begin by pay attention, you know, pay attention to the movements of the Spirit because the Spirit is there, He's alive, and He guides us. He doesn't let us down, nor does, of course, Our Lady. Therese had really transformed my life and her writings. And um, so I thought that was just one way to live the absolute that I felt so called to. And of course, it could only be in a cloister, away from everything. And look, look at me, I'm in, in Washington, the, the crazy capital of the crazy Western world. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but that's where I am. So it took time for me mm -hmm. to understand. And that's really this calling for the, um, it was very important for me to see that, yes, we could live in a different way, but a radical vocation in the world, and that I was so attracted by uh, St. Paul, but it, I, was, I would see it in Teresa's life. You know, uh, our life is hidden uh, with Christ in God. So that hidden life that Therese speaks so much about, and John of the Cross, of course, and Holy Mother too in, in different ways, um, 
So for me, that was really what I was looking for. And I was going to Notre Dame de Vie because there I could hear um, the doctrine and the saints being taught and shared about, which I couldn't find in any of the commons I was knocking to. But I thought I was just coming to learn, and then I would go to a commons. And one day I had to really... But what really helped me is that I... The, the ha-ha moment was really when I understood... Um, uh, in the prologue of our constitutions, and I, I, it was given to me, I read it, Father Margin said they will, the first prologue, they will um, forego the religious habit, habit and many of the advantages of the religious state. So all of a sudden it was something that I was called to forego in order to go deeper and to be even more hidden in a way. I mean, then you have to leave it, of course. Yes. It's another story. <laughs> but, but you see the movement, the vocation. Yeah. yeah, one thing that's really struck me knowing you and, and learning more about Notre Dame de Vie is the radicality of that call. I think that often we look at the, the friars or the nuns and we see, because of the exterior things, we, we make visible in our lives the radicality of that call. Yes. But in many and it's ways, necessary for the world. Oh, yes, certainly. <laughs> yeah, but in, in, in you're called to the same radicality. Um, in a slightly more hidden way, but just as radical of giving yes. over your entire life to Carmel and to Jesus Christ. Is there any particular Carmelite writing that has made a profound impact on you in uh, your vocation to Notre Dame de Vie? So at different stages, you know, I've been in Notre Dame, I joined in 1986, so obviously, um, you know, we... The, the writings like scripture, they, they always knew we hear them differently. But I think for me, Therese, you know, and uh, that's again the hidden life, the little grain of sand in, uh, in here. But um, for me, there is this letter to Céline. You know, Céline tells her, um, you seem to be possessed by God as others are possessed by the devil. How do you do it? It seems so easy for you. And Therese is upset by that. She doesn't like that she would see her and understand her like this. So she said, dear sister, do you not understand that to love Jesus, the weaker and more wretched we are, the better material do we make for his consuming and transfiguring love? In French, she doesn't use wretched, so of course wretched, you think of amazing grace, it, has, it, it resonates in English, but she uses, it's very strong. The more weak we are and without virtue, it's very strong. So this sense of powerlessness that by ourselves we cannot do it. And you know, today we all say, oh, people are more fragile and we all have, yes, we have those wounds. She had those wounds, some were healed, some weren't. And I think it's great hope for today that even when we fall, you know, and how many times, you know, and we can, God's mercy. And so in fact, our holiness is more, as she would say, you know, to raise our little foot at the bottom of the and uh, and so I think for me that's the good news of Therese the simple desire to be a victim suffices but we must also consent to ever remain poor and helpless and here lies the difficulty mm -hmm. so our holiness in being in accepting continuously our powerlessness our poverty our 
doing it again? No. I did that again? Yes, you did. And, you know, and, and being there and trusting in this mercy. And I think for me today, it's really, there would be many other gifts, of course, there are many other gifts of Carmel today, but I think that's really a core message for, um, that we try to bring. So we try to, yes. to follow that yeah, movement. That's beautiful. Which, well, thank you so much, Anne Elizabeth. That was really, it's been a, such a blessing to, to hear about your vocation to Notre Dame de Vie. So thank you for sharing with us. Thank you, Brother John Mary. We rejoice in your vocation oh, and we pray goodness. for many more. Yes. God bless you. <laughs> thank you. Yes.